This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Happy Friday. Welcome back to the WOMED. Jack and I have such a fun super sciencey, which we don't get to do all the time episode for y'all featuring Dr. Mira Shaw. She is an OBGYN and infertility specialist and also sits on the board um, of co-fertility. Yes. Dr. Shaw is just so amazing. She's double board certified in OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology, and she's a fertility specialist at Nova IVF in Mountain View, California. I'm so pumped about this episode. If I were you, I would get a notebook ready, your favorite writing implement, because you're going to want to take notes. If you're in this reproductive endocrinology special or unit at school, this is going to be amazing. You want to talk period science? Take notes. You are going to pass your next test. I know, Dee. I told you that I'm literally going to go back and listen to this episode with a notepad and a pen. It was so informative and so helpful for anybody that's going on this journey of egg freezing or just fertility in general. And wants to know more about what's happening in their body. Hell yeah. Well, okay. So I I don't really know if I need to know what more is happening in your body, but I just want to know what's happening with you. What's going on? (laughs) Actually, right now, Michael and I are on vacation in San Fran, where... I got to run into and have a special little catch-up session with one of our favorite WOMED guests, Dr. Shoshana Ungleider, who is doing fantastic post-mastectomy and hysterectomy. She's doing great. She's doing really great. She's got a lot of um, really cool things on the horizon for her and with uh, the Endwell Project. So y'all got to keep an eye out on our girl. What about you, Jack? What's going on? Well, we must just, I don't know, maybe we're getting in sync because I also um, enjoyed some, not personal time, but I also spent a little bit of time with a friend of the pod, Dr. Z, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. Yeah, you know, actually, Dia, I've kind of been having a bit of a stressful week, just like really busy, not a lot of time for me. And so this Friday afternoon, I decided to just kind of have a self-care afternoon Um, and not like self-care as in like, you know, bubbles, candles, no self-care as in like, I cleaned my apartment. I did my laundry. I did my dishes. And I know I've been struggling a little bit mentally, um, just like with things here and there. And I saw that Dr. Z just came out with a hour, hour and a half long workshop that you can, um, subscribe for on her Instagram profile and on her website. It was so helpful. I just messaged her and said, Dr. Z. That was like the best $40 I've ever spent. If you guys don't know Dr. Z, she is an expert in narcissism and in narcissistic abuse. And Danielle, like I just, it was so helpful, this workshop that I did. I think for anyone that's kind of 
like maybe dealt with a level of narcissism um, with someone in their life, whether that's a partner or a parent or a friend. You guys, Dr. Z, Dr. Z and Dr. Shoshana, man, we've got some, we, we keep good company here on the WOMED. We sure do. And I'm just so glad that we get to add Dr. Mira Shah to that mix. So we cannot wait for you guys to dig into this episode. We'll catch you on the other side. It's interesting with these conversations that we've been having about egg freezing, how there's such an intersection between our personal lives and with science and medicine. Obviously, Danny and I are both nurses, so we are extra interested in the science behind everything that we're about to get into. Like We both had the, the medicine show up on the front doorstep and we're opening it up. And I think most people probably are super freaked out by the needles, but Danny and I are like, it's just so second nature. We're like, all right, where's this one going? Let's do it. I know. Make sure we're keeping them all in the fridge and all the good stuff. Exactly. So Dr. Shaw, we are so grateful to welcome you to the WOMED and joining us on this series that we talked about. We started with Lauren, one of the co-founders, and now we have you. You are a reproductive endocrinologist specializing in infertility and also the medical advisor at CoFertility. Welcome. We are so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you guys. I mean, obviously, CoFertility needs a medical advisor, right? You can't have egg freezing without someone who knows the field, is kind of overseeing it. Um, how did you come to be aligned with co-fertility? Well, um, Hallie Tucko, who's one of the co-founders, reached out to me because we had a previous collaboration and she knew that I'm really interested in always pushing the envelope and looking at the next big thing in our field. And I've always had a sort of an inner entrepreneur within me thinking about how I have all these great ideas that never have a, a way to execute them. And so Hallie reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested. And so I had a conversation with um, Lauren, who is also one of the, the co-founders. And I, I was really compelled by her personal story, which she might be sharing on, on your podcast as well. And I, was, I really felt an instant connection with what their mission is. I really aligned with what they're trying to fulfill, which is this incredible unmet need in our field of fertility which is first egg freezing and increasing awareness and taking away the cost piece of it. Because I think a lot of the reason that women don't pursue it is because it's cost prohibitive. So if we can take away that element, what an incredible way to increase exposure and awareness and allow people not to have an obstacle to, to actually do what they really want to and what's best for them. And then secondarily, I think that the landscape around egg donation really needs a facelift. And that's really what co-fertility is trying to do. Right now, the process is just very impersonal. It's it's a completely anonymous process, which I think in this day and age of genetic information, I think that there's only so much longer that that process can be completely anonymous. It's so important. I think we all in our field encourage full disclosure to children that are donor conceived, because the last thing you want is that child finding out through another mechanism that they're parents are not their biological parents. So I think their model of, you know, just creating relationships and having all this information be passed back and forth is, is a really positive one. And so I think what they're trying to do is really change the landscape around egg freezing and egg donation through this mechanism that really benefits both. And so I was really excited by this idea. And it's one that I've thought about 
but really the, the way that they've created it and all the tools and the way that they're navigating around some of the challenges, I think is really thoughtful, is very ethical. And again, I really just love being part of this team of like all women. They're all like from incredible backgrounds and it's just really inspirational to be among them. I, I think I could speak for uh, Jack here too, that we would love to be a part of this team. <laughs> Because, you know, we like to take on a lot of extra things. But just to completely echo what you said, the co-fertility team is incredible. You guys are all just so passionate and driven in creating a more accessible space for egg freezing. So thank you. Something you said stood out to me because obviously you've been working in reproductive endocrinology for, I'm not, how many years have you been in it? before joining with co-fertility. But as you mentioned, you thought about a lot of these things. You saw a lot of these things. So when co-fertility came around and was kind of putting all of these pieces together and offering some of a, somewhat of a solution to a lot of these issues, what did that feel like for you? It just felt like, you know, finally this is happening. I mean, I think for so long, we've been looking for a mechanism to do this and we just needed people in tech who had that background, that entrepreneurial spirit, who had were driven by the right you know, passions and initiatives to, to actually carry it out. I think generally speaking, us physicians, we're, 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 we're at full capacity with patient care, but we have these ideas, but we just need someone to help us kind of carry them out. So when they came to me, it was just an easy, yes, absolutely. I want to be part of this team and, and carry out this really great idea. And I mean, it's, we've been around for, I believe, you know, about a year, a little under a year. And there's just been so much progress made and so much excitement and interest in our field already. We have so many clinics that are partnering with us. And so it's just great to see that validation of this idea really catching on and people are really excited about it. With this episode, Jack and I really wanted to focus on the science behind egg freezing, science behind, you know, our menstrual cycles, how everything kind of comes together. And our listeners are largely based in medicine. But, you know, for some of us, the first we actually started to learn and started to understand the science of a menstrual cycle was like in high school bio or even later than that, even in nursing school. So just like for those who aren't in the medical field or have been out of school for a while, can we just like run through the average menstrual cycle? Absolutely. And, you know, the menstrual cycle to a fertility specialist is like a vital sign to us. We get into the details. How long is your cycle? How many days do you bleed? What is your flow like? Do you have spotting leading up to your full flow? I mean, we want to know all the details because every single one of those details matters. For example, if somebody says that they have spotting after having intercourse, that could mean that they have a cervical polyp or, you know, that they might have a cervical kind of ectropion, which is a type of condition on the cervix. So there's just everything can correlate to potentially pathology that we can uncover. If a woman tells me that she has irregular menstrual cycles, I'm going to go down a completely different pathway to understand her full kind of endocrine profile, understand her thyroid, her prolactin hormones. So it really is just sort of the gateway to understand a woman's general health in many ways. So the menstrual cycle, I usually, and, and this is such a wonderful opportunity to, to kind of re-educate or maybe educate for the first time women about their bodies. I, you know, I, I 
echo what a lot of other people in my field say, which is that there, there really isn't enough education around women's health and women's bodies. And I am oftentimes just so surprised at how little women know about their bodies. And so this is such a great aha moment for so many women to say, well, oh, that makes sense now. When I talk about egg freezing, it naturally goes into a discussion about the menstrual cycle. We talk about the two phases of the menstrual cycle. There's the you know, normal cycles are around 28 days, but obviously plus or minus a few. And I always tell women that it's very typical to have cycles that can be a little bit off if you've had poor sleep or traveling or under a lot of stress. That's normal. So I like to normalize a lot of things too, so that women don't worry about their cycles too much. But like I said, if it's something that's persistent or we see patterns in the irregularities of their cycles, then we go down a different diagnostic pathway. But we talk about the, the two phases of the cycle and we there's two ways you can really describe the menstrual cycle. You can describe it from a ovarian-centric model or you can describe it from a uterocentric model. Most of the time you're going to hear it described from the ovarian-centric model, which is looking at what's happening in the ovary. So when a woman starts her cycle, that's the beginning of essentially what's happening in the body, which is the selection of an egg from a cohort of maybe a few, maybe five, 10, 15 more eggs or so. And I describe it sometimes like a, like a lottery. It's like a random process. It's not like your body necessarily knows which egg is the best one. It's just sort of, there's a random egg that gets pre-selected to become the dominant or the chosen one. And so that egg will kind of suck up all the hormones from the pituitary gland, which is the most important gland for fertility hormones. There's two main hormones of the menstrual cycle, FSH, which stands for follicle stimulating hormone, and LH, which stands for luteinizing hormone. Those hormones are released by this small pea-sized gland inside the brain. Goes through the bloodstream, gets to the ovary, and activates one follicle. A follicle is basically a structure that contains an egg. It nourishes it. It allows it over the span of about 10 to 14 days to mature into an egg that's capable of ovulating and then fertilizing with the sperm. So these hormones are really, really important. And so what happens is that that egg gets selected and that phase of your cycle is called the follicular phase. And then what happens is that this egg is growing and it starts to produce more and more estrogen. There are cells around that follicle called the theca cells and the granulosa cells. And they're doing really incredible things with estrogen and progesterone production. But in the first half of the cycle, it's all very estrogen dominant. And so what's happening is that follicle is growing. In turn, it's producing all this estrogen. And then something really cool happens, which is that there's this threshold that you hit with your estrogen level. And then your brain turns on a switch. And that's called the LH surge. And when your estrogen has peaked above a certain level for a certain number of hours, your body turns on a switch to secrete a large amount of LH hormone or luteinizing hormone. That is then going to turn that egg into a follicle that's going to rupture. That egg is now floating around in your belly and gets swept up by your fallopian tube, gets sucked in, and then it essentially travels in the fallopian tube for a few days where it meets the sperm if you know there is timed intercourse. And fertilization actually happens in the fallopian tube. The embryo then takes a few days to grow and develop and then migrates into the uterus where it implants. Now, if there's no conception, then that egg just kind of just naturally disintegrates and it dissolves. But then you enter into the second half of your cycle, which is called the luteal phase. 
named after the corpus luteum. That's what happens to the follicle after the egg is released out of it. It turns into a structure that starts to produce progesterone. Now, progesterone is like literally my favorite hormone because it's so important for so many things. And the actual, if you look at the term progesterone, you can break it up into progesterone. Pro, promoting, gest, pregnancy, own, hormone. So it's a hormone that's promoting pregnancy. That's the most important hormone you need. So essentially, this corpus luteum produces progesterone the second half of your cycle. And if there's a pregnancy identified by the body, then this corpus luteum helps to support that. But the corpus luteum will only live if the pregnancy hormone is detected. And if it's not, that structure dissolves too. You have a drop in your progesterone. That signals menstruation. So the whole cycle happens again. So that's really what the menstrual cycle is. And it really helps to understand how egg freezing works, how all these hormones work together to make it all happen. I love getting to talk about all this stuff so much. So when you are trying to explain the process of egg freezing to like a non-medical person, like what's your elevator pitch for them? Like, how do you explain what you do? So I, I, I tend to, well, I have a long elevator pitch, so we're in a long elevator together, but my philosophy around counseling is just, I want to give a woman as much information as possible and sort of like just gauge what her understanding of it all and what her education level is to really make sure that she can digest that properly. But I start out by just talking about how common it is these days. And what I'm also telling women that I'm seeing women come back to see me who have frozen their eggs maybe five, 10 years ago, and they're coming back and they're having babies at a time that they couldn't have biologically conceived. I just turned 40 a couple months ago. And you know, I went through medical school in my, in my early to mid 30s. And so essentially anyone in a medical school class who didn't freeze their eggs or, or who, who wasn't married or thinking about starting a family, I called them up and said, hey, listen, you need to come and see me because I need to freeze your eggs. I know this is going to come in handy a few years online. And I'm finally seeing that these, these women are coming back to see me now. They found their life partner. They're ready to start a family. And it's just so validating to see that. So I, I tell women that, you know, they're, that, you know, we don't know yet whether you're going to need to use these eggs, but the process of going through this, or at least learning about it is going to be so powerful to you. And for the women that I take care of who go through it, I, I haven't, I've yet to meet a woman who regretted going through the process, regardless of whether they use their eggs or not, it gave them an immense amount of peace of mind to just live their lives fully. Um, so I start by giving them that background in my personal experience with taking care of women who've come back to see me and just sharing the experiences of women who've gone through it. But I also talk about sort of historically how it all came about, because I think it's really interesting to talk about that. So egg freezing used to be experimental. In fact, that's how it was labeled by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, our ASR, our national kind of organization. And prior to really 2012, this was a treatment that we would really only feel comfortable really pushing onto women who absolutely needed to freeze their eggs because that was their only way to preserve fertility. Maybe they were, you know, had been recently diagnosed with cancer or were going to get their ovaries removed for some indication. And this was literally the only option they had. But as we started to gather all this data around safety and efficacy, we, and, and also the technology was advancing where we could now tell women that, you know, if you freeze your eggs, 
you come back and thaw them, they're probably all going to survive. It didn't always used to be that case. In fact, 10 years ago, we would be like, maybe 50% will survive. It was, we were not as sure about it. The technology wasn't very good. So all of these things evolved around 2012. And that's when the ASRM organization lifted that label experimental and started calling it planned oocyte cryopreservation and essentially elective egg freezing. And that's when most fertility clinics sort of opened the floodgates to say, all right, we can now accept patients who are interested in freezing their eggs for any reason. I mean, really, we don't judge. You know, there's a lot of reasons people choose to freeze their eggs. And we think they're all deserving of learning about the process and undergoing it. if They're a good candidate for it. We I want us you. to go back. I know. I know. Danielle and I just love to become best friends with all of our guests. So we're going to have to start, we're going to have to start a group chat after this, but <laughs> I actually, I want to circle back to a little bit more on the science bit of this with the menstrual cycle and now tying this in with the egg freezing. So if that's the elevator pitch for the egg freezing, taking it a step further, how does the menstrual cycle relate to egg freezing. Um, I love this question too, because I'm at a, such a interesting time in my personal life where I have an I- identical twin sister. We've gone through a lot of things in life together. We went to college together. We went to um, nursing school together. We got our master's together, or our doctor together. It's ridiculous. But she has been happily married for about five years. Um, and she is actually starting to try to have a baby the natural way. And so she is tracking her cycles. She's been using the out- LH strips, which I didn't know was a thing where we were talking about LH and the LH surge. Um, she's been testing her LH and ovulation kits. And now I'm kind of at the same time doing this in a very different way. Can you just describe for our listeners just the brief differences between trying with the menstrual cycle, trying to conceive a child in quote unquote natural way versus um, how it fits in with the, with the menstrual cycle and egg freezing? Sure. So um, couples often ask me, what what are ways that you can optimize natural fertility? The best way you can do this is, number one, ensure that you're having regular cycles because that's confirmation that you're ovulating. You know, women often, often ask me, should I check a progesterone level to make sure I've ovulated? And I say, did you get your period? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, well, then that's confirmation. You don't need to do a blood test. So when you get a period, that means that two weeks prior to that, an egg release out of your ovary. So in a 28-day cycle or so, most women will ovulate around the midpoint of that cycle. Another really interesting part about menstrual cycles is that the second half of your cycle, I mentioned it's called the luteal phase, is always fixed. It's that 14 days. The corpus luteum has a 14-day lifespan and then it dies. The first half of the cycle can be variable. So when a woman tells me that she has a short cycle or a long cycle, that all relates to the length of her follicular phase. After ovulation, it's a fixed. You can literally set a clock. Two weeks later, you're going to get a period if you haven't conceived. So how that relates to getting pregnant naturally is that there is a peak fertility window, and it's actually in the six days leading up to ovulation. So by tracking ovulation on these actually quite good at-home ovulation kits, you can detect a surge in both estrogen and the hormone LH, and that's going to tell you 24, 36, 72 hours before you ovulate. That's the, that, those are your days that you want to try to have timed intercourse. Now, of course, it's, it's helpful to know if the sperm counts are healthy. That helps to advise whether a couple should have you know, daily intercourse or every other day or every three days. But if the sperm counts are normal, sperm actually lives in the reproductive tract for up to 72 hours. 
So even if you just had exposure once or twice in that six-day window, that's all you need. So in terms of optimizing natural fertility, I do think that if you want to be a little bit more calculated about it, you can. These ovulation predictors are very accurate and, and very good. But if you don't have access to that and they can be expensive, it's okay. Like even if you had timed intercourse once or twice in the two weeks following when your period finishes, you're likely to catch and capture that window. So as it relates to egg freezing, the menstrual cycle, so as we talked about, the main hormone is follicle stimulating hormone released by the pituitary gland in the brain. Our bodies are designed to essentially create singleton pregnancies, one baby. I mean, twins happen naturally, but they're rare. Other species, different. The reason for that is because in the human species, we don't produce a lot of FSH intentionally so that we only recruit one egg per cycle. So FSH is being secreted in, the, in a small amount, and that's going to recruit one egg. So let's say a woman produces like 10 follicles every month. One of them's going to get selected, and the other nine, they're going to get deprived of that FSH. And if they don't get that signal, they also have a lifespan of a couple of weeks, and they're going to be gone before you know it. So what we're trying to achieve with egg freezing is essentially, I describe it to patients as a mechanism to make reproduction more efficient and less wasteful because it is a very inefficient process, right? I mean, in our lifetimes, we will barely use a fraction of a percent of our total number of eggs that we were born with. Wow. And we're wasting all of these eggs that are perfectly good eggs, you know? So what we're trying to achieve with egg freezing is giving those other eggs, I say, a second chance. Let's give them an opportunity to create an equal playing field for all of these eggs to grow together. And by giving the body more exposure to this hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, you can achieve that. So now you can grow a cohort of 10, 15, 20 eggs in two weeks. And these were eggs that were destined to be gone. So it's not like we're changing a woman's fertility in the future. We're not taking eggs away that could have been used later on. These were use it or lose it eggs, right? And so now we're, we're giving them an opportunity to grow. So now we can grow these eggs in a cohort. Now, what's interesting is that every woman's going to have a different response to the FSH hormone in terms of the number of eggs that she can grow. And happy to go into this in, a, um, in another question, but I think it's really important for women to know and not compare themselves to other women going through egg freezing because everyone's unique and everybody has, every woman has her own unique ovarian reserve. This is a concept that is so critical to my counseling. I talk about it as I discuss whether a woman's a good candidate for egg freezing. What is her ovarian reserve? How many eggs does she have left? There's two ways that we can look at this. The first is a blood test called AMH or anti-malarian hormone. This is a, my favorite hormone because it can be drawn at any phase of your cycle. It doesn't matter. And there's some labs that you might hear called like day three labs. You have to go and the third day of your period. Well, that's kind of inconvenient, right? Um, to do. So instead you can draw this hormone anytime in your cycle and it will reflect the number of eggs you have left. It's essentially a hormone that gets released by the eggs. And so it's proportional. The higher the AMH, the more number of eggs you have left. Unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do externally to affect our AMH. It's not like if we're super healthy and exercise a lot that our AMH is going to be higher. It's just something that's part of our DNA. It's genetic. And so um, if your AMH is in a normal range, we would expect a certain number of follicles to be there at any given time in the menstrual cycle. We might find that it's low or high, and that might, again, help us counsel women on what their expected response might look like. But 
ultimately, as we assess whether a woman's a good candidate for it, we look at age and we look at her ovarian reserve to help predict what the response is going to look like. Obviously, labs and um, monitoring your hormone levels um, and also doing actual ultrasounds and follicle counts are a big part of this process. What exactly are you monitoring then with the ultrasounds throughout the process? So at baseline, before you start any medications, you have these teeny tiny follicles in the ovary, and they're going to be measuring like four to seven millimeters or so small. And as you stimulate the ovary, these follicles are going to grow. Now, you can't see eggs with the naked eye, but you can measure follicle diameters. And what we know is that there's a certain range, ideal range, where a follicle can develop into a certain kind of usually around 17 to 22 millimeters where we know that the egg inside of that follicle has completely matured and developed to a stage where when we extract it, it's likely to have the capacity to fertilize. We know that eggs that come from smaller follicles are going to be immature eggs. So you might get an egg, but it's not going to be capable of doing anything really. And then eggs can get too big too, and they can kind of past their prime almost, and we call those atretic eggs because they have almost degenerated. So there's, you ideally want this cohort to grow synchronously so that you can, because there's only one moment in time that you capture all the eggs, right? There's something called a trigger shot. And that's actually the final step of your egg retrieval cycle where the eggs will complete the very, very final stages of cell division and getting ready to be extracted. And so, you know, if the follicles are all different sizes, that can be suboptimal in terms of trying to optimize a number of actually good quality eggs that you get out of a cycle. So going back to your initial question, though, what we're, what we're monitoring is the size of the follicles. We're assessing how synchronous that cohort is. We're using that to sometimes adjust doses, maybe go up or down. We typically will use both an ultrasound um, measurement and an estrogen level to determine how many more days of stimulation, you know, how we dose medications, what trigger medications we're going to use to optimize for the best results. But our, at the same time, our second goal is also to minimize side effects and minimize the risks post-retrieval, specifically of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So we can do that now with really titrating the dosing and ensuring we use the appropriate trigger medications for a patient. love to dive even more into these medications. Yes. So I, because I have so many, I have so many questions. First of all, do most people, if you're freezing your eggs, start the same types of medications? Does it really depend on the labs or what are just like, what are some of these main medications that we're doing? What do they do in the body? And then I have a lot of questions about this trigger shot. <laughs> yes. Okay. Great, like, great, great, great question. The first time I heard about the trigger shot, I'm like, this is not real. Like, what is this? <laughs> Absolutely. Those are great questions. So the you, so I'll, I'll, I'll name a few of the medications. So there's a class of medications that fall under the follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. Some of the brand names are like Folistim, Gonalef. Menopure is actually a medication that has FSH in it too. And these are, like I said, the primary hormones of ovarian stimulation. Um, you might also, the LH hormone, which is also important for follicular genesis or development of the follicle, um, is in the form of LH, but it's hard to isolate that and put it into an injectable pen. 
So we actually use the properties of a medication called HCG, which is actually the pregnancy hormone, which interestingly enough, molecularly mimics the LH hormone. So we can actually use it at specific doses that are equivalent to what the body needs in terms of an LH dose. And that's actually what sometimes is used to stimulate the ovaries to a combination of FSH and either some, some medications can, can purify LH, but most will use a form of HCG. Those combined medications will help the ovary stimulate. But in addition to that, once the eggs start to grow in this entire core, your estrogen levels start to go up really fast. And if you remember from earlier, I mentioned that when the body senses that there's high estrogen levels for a certain amount of time, there's a switch in the brain that's going to turn on and your body's going to, doesn't know what's going on. It thinks, oh, well, I'm ready to ovulate. So we got to put the brakes on that and make sure that those eggs stay put so that we get them for an egg retrieval. So we introduce the antagonist. The antagonist essentially prevents ovulation. And this medication, you might hear them, um, uh, certain brand names are Ganarelic, Cetratide, Pyrimidol. These medications are introduced when estrogen levels get to a certain number or the follicle sizes reach a certain size, and it helps to prevent that from happening. So those are the primary medications. You might also see some, there are a lot of different types of protocols for egg freezing, and it all depends on a woman's age, her ovarian reserve, or her history if she's in prior cycles with good or bad responses, um, if she has a history of endometriosis or, you know, there's so many different ways we can tailor protocols for women to make sure that they have the best responses. But the ones that I mentioned already are the primary medications. The other medications that you might see, uh, often a lot of protocols will use birth control pills as what we call a kind of priming. We kind of use that to suppress the ovaries almost to kind of create that equal playing field so that when we stimulate there, it's a more even growth. But we also, to be honest, use it just for coordination of cycles so that we can time things with our lab and make sure that things can fall on certain dates. Um, so you'll see birth control pills used sometimes. Then you might see other things that are used for priming. For example, we actually use estrogen to prime the follicles to, again, grow more evenly. You might see a medication called Lupron, um, which is used in protocols called the long and the flare protocols. Those are just to essentially, again, achieve the same things to help um, stimulate the ovaries. But Lupron is, is a really fascinating drug because it actually has this property where it, it flares FSH and LH production in the very beginning, and then it suppresses. So it turns the switch on and then it turns the switch off. So we can use its properties initially to produce natural forms of FSH and LH for a woman. But then after a few days, it'll kind of switch off and it'll prevent those eggs from ovulating. So we can kind of use its dual properties to our advantage in certain types of protocols. That's so cool. So is it is it safe to say instead, like with egg freezing, instead of just like one follicle being stimulated to release one egg, we are essentially trying to stimulate all of the follicles to like exactly right release their chosen eggs i, I yes. love that metaphor by the way that's really stuck with me like was it like <laughs> the, the minions one. like the the, yes. one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that analogy um but we're essentially trying to stimulate all of the follicles to release some mature eggs to grow to the right size 
um, and not too big, but like not too small so that we can get the most amount of mature eggs. That's exactly right. And then wait, so really quick. So is this why the, so the bloating is one of the side effects and someone, I remember hearing that once of the bloating is like literally due to you creating so many eggs. And your ovaries just getting so big. Is that true? Your ovary will, depending on the number of follicles that grow, go from like the size of like maybe a little bit bigger than like a walnut size to potentially like a grapefruit size, you know, depending on how many eggs you grow. Because like I said, the follicles are are growing and they're essentially getting filled with more and more fluid and this nourishing that egg. So a follicle goes from, like I said, early five millimeters to 20 millimeters. It quadruples in size. So your ovary is like quadrupling in size. So a lot of the bloating is the sheer size of the ovaries getting bigger. But there's also a second reason you have bloating. And this happens mostly after your egg retrieval, because what happens is that even though we drain all the fluid from each of the follicles, there's a refill that happens, like the ovaries refill with some natural fluids. And then the ovary, and and we can get into the trigger medications, but certain trigger medications can make the ovaries leaky. They're porous. So the fluid that refills starts to leak into your abdomen. So you might feel even more bloating. I always prepare my patients that you might feel more bloated after your retrieval than before because you have all this fluid and now it's leaking too. So it takes sometimes up to a week or longer for that fluid to reaccumulate back into the right spaces in your body for your kidneys to filter all of that out. But the bloating is really from both the sheer size of the ovary and that excess fluid. That's why they also recommend that like, you know, exercising and stuff too, because your ovaries are grown so large that you could have some like potential torsion with the fluid tubes. Okay. Uh, Torsion of the actual ovary. So there's a very, very thin vascular pedicle to the ovary. And I'll be honest with you guys, I have only seen this maybe twice in the last decade of practicing for IVF. It's extremely rare, but it's a theoretical risk. And and it can happen where the ovary gets bigger and it just sort of twists on its pedicle, cutting off its own blood supply. So yes, that's primarily the reason. But most women, I mean, I always tell women just, trust your body. You know your body best. And sometimes like doing some low impact exercise during the cycle can be helpful. You know, just it's a it's a good outlet. It's used for stress reduction. It can help just, you know, just feel better throughout the cycle. And if it starts to feel uncomfortable, just stop. But I I really just mostly trust women that they know when to stop. But I do say, you know, avoid certain types of activities where you're really twisting your torso, doing flips and things like that, you know. But um, outside of that, I I feel like it's generally extremely safe and the risk of complications are a fraction of a percent. They're so, so minimal, including the risk of ovarian torsion. So I wanted to kind of jump back to the menstrual cycle here and where these meds come into play with starting this whole process. So we've done all the labs, we've got our meds. What are we waiting for to start our medications? So typically the start of a cycle will be the start of the menstrual period. So a patient might call her clinic up and say, I have started my period today. And in my practice, what we do is we have the patient come in, we do a follicle count. We kind of ensure that 
everything looks good to start the cycle. Sometimes there can be situations in which it's not optimal to move forward in that particular month. For example, there might be some cysts, you know, and cysts are common. We all have them and sometimes they're persistent. So we like to, in some cases, ensure that they've resolved before we start stimulating. Um, and or severe anemia. <laughs> a lot of different reasons cycles can get delayed, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, looking at the ultrasound and making sure that the follicle count looks good is, is step number one. Um, and then in our practice, it's choosing a protocol based on what we see for some women, especially those who have been, who are freezing their eggs, they have been on birth control pills forever. And I'll typically like look at the ovaries and I'll tell that patient, Hey, I think that you might benefit from just coming off of pills for a month or two. Let's let your ovaries wake up a little bit so that you get a better response out of this. So there's a lot of reasons that we might like push things off. And most of the time the ovary will perk up and bounce back. Um, and, and for some women, birth control does not interfere at all with their response. And, um, and just to be clear to all the listeners out there, um, I'm referring to birth control pills, but for women who are using other forms of contraception, like IUDs or implants, those don't have to come out during the cycle. So good news. So yeah, so essentially you're coming in, we're doing the fall count, we choose the protocol. And then there may be a period of time that you're on birth control pills, maybe anywhere from like seven to 21 days of pills or so. And then after you complete birth control pills, you'll get kind of an artificial period and then you will begin your medications within the first few days of your, you know, that period. Um, that's considered stimulation day one or stim day one. And then your clinic will likely bring you back around cycle to stim day four, five, or six, depending on the protocol. And at each appointment, they'll do an ultrasound and a blood test. They'll tell you when you need to come back. But usually I tell patients that you're going to need to come in every couple of days, usually every two to three days at the beginning. The second week can be a little bit more frequent monitoring because we're getting close to the end. We just really want to make sure that we get the right timing for the trigger. So I've had patients that came like three days in a row at the very end of the cycle. And that's just what it takes to make sure that we get the timing right. So in all, most cycles will take about two weeks culminating in the trigger shot and the egg retrieval. This is the conversation I feel like Jack and I have been waiting to have. Because <laughs> we just want to understand it all. Yes. Because you know what? We have talked a bit like to other um to other guests, just about like some of those general lifestyle things that we should be doing. Um, so and we've heard like pretty much the same advice. But yes, I really so we've we've talked a little bit again, yeah, like I just said, some of the things that you should be doing during the medications and then up to the trigger shot. No one has told us what the trigger shot is. So please explain. <laughs> <sighs> yes, the trigger shot. So this is one of the most important medications of the cycle because what's happening on a biological level is that your cells are undergoing a stage of cell division where it's going from a structure that has the same amount of DNA as every other cell in your body to going to half of that, right? Because you have to have half the DNA to fertilize with the sperm that has, again, half the amount of DNA. So that step is critical. And the trigger shot is, again, in, in a natural cycle, is essentially induced by the LH hormone. The LH hormone essentially creates an environment where the follicle can rupture and the egg can just release out of that follicle to get sucked into the tube. So in IVF, we mimic the LH surge using HCG. Again, I mentioned that those two things are 
very molecularly similar. So, and it's very easy to isolate 8CG. Um, in fact, interesting side note, 8CG is isolated from postmenopausal urine, actually, because there's a lot of production of HCG. So and there's a lot of interesting, and you can also synthetically create HCG and LH and, and FSH too. Um, so, but in any case, these hormones induce the LH surge. So HCG is used primarily as the trigger shot for, for IVF. And, and then there's a certain number of hours that elapse before you're ready to undergo an egg retrieval. So you don't want to wait too long because then those eggs are all going to ovulate. But you don't want to have too short of an interval because then that egg hasn't undergone all the steps of maturation. So there's a sweet spot anywhere from like 34 to 36 hours. We use 35 hours in our clinic. That's the right amount of time to allow the eggs to mature. What's happening actually is that the egg is kind of stuck to the wall of the follicle. And when you take the trigger shot, it kind of releases that egg. So now it's free floating in the follicle. So when we aspirate it using a needle, it's just right there. Otherwise, it gets stuck and you can't take it out. So the trigger shot's mainly HCG. However, we also use co-triggers sometimes. So a co-trigger is the addition of sometimes Lupron. Sometimes we use an FSH co-trigger. The idea behind an FSH co-trigger is that we want to mimic what's happening in the body. So in the body, you actually have like this release of both FSH and LH hormones that induce the maturation step. So we try to mimic that in the IVF and egg freezing cycles as well. So sometimes you'll see that as a co-trigger. And then Lupron, Lupron again, will achieve the same thing. It, 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 if it used, uh, you know, in a certain type of protocol, it can release FSH and LH hormones, which create a more natural form of ovulation. And we like to use Lupron as a trigger alone in patients that might be at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So the reason that we can use the Lupron trigger is because it has a shorter half-life than 8CG. If you use 8CG, it's going to be in your system for like a week or two. And what 8CG does is it makes your ovaries really leaky and it makes all those, all the, the fluids kind of shift back and forth in the body. It can create electrolyte abnormalities. And so that can be dangerous in someone who's at really high risk for that. So in a patient, for example, who has a high ovarian reserve, for example, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they might have 20 plus eggs. Her estrogen level might be like two, three, four, five thousand. We are going to use a Lupron only trigger, no HCG, so that that trigger is going to be in and out of her system like that in a day. And so she's going to get the benefits of the maturation, but not all the other side effects like the, the fluid shifts and all of that. And the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation with the Lupron trigger is close to nothing. It's a fraction of a percent. So those are the types of triggers that we use. Primarily, it's HCG. Um, you might hear it called Novarel or Pregnil. And that's used in conjunction with these co-triggers, Lupron and FSH. And you can also do the Lupron-only trigger. Okay. We're at the main event now. <laughs> we are at the retrieval. <laughs> We've taken the shots. We've done our trigger shot. Jack and I will actually be traveling up to New York to do our retrievals. How does this work? I mean, do you go in from like, I, I know you're going to have to have like a transvaginal ultrasound probe. So you've got to be able to see everything. Is the needle with the probe going through the vagina or is it like, are you needling on the surface? I wish I, I, I wish 
we had like YouTube, so you could see my visual. hands. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, plenty of good YouTube uh, videos out there if, if you wanted to see a, a cartoon version of it. But essentially, what we use is an, uh, a transvaginal ultrasound connected with a needle guide. And we use like a 16 or 18 gauge needle that gets placed right at the tip. It's a really small distance that it travels past the, 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 the tip of the ultrasound probe. So we go in through the vaginal wall and the ovary is like right there on the other side of it. So we're not needing to go through a lot of other structures, which is why it's so safe. We literally are going through the vagina straight into the ovary. I and think I have it in my head that you have to like go through the uterus and it's like <laughs> this probe is not going to get up and over in there. Thankfully so. not. Think that would be a very traumatic like this needle is going to be huge. <laughs> No, um, it is in fact a, like a very, very simple, very safe procedure where we literally, we most of the time make a single entry into the ovary and it's, it's, it, and we do it strategically so we, that we only have to make a single entry point, right? And we go into each follicle one by one, we get every last bit of fluid that gets, there's a negative pressure system connected to our tubing. So it gets sucked in gently, very, very gently into a test tube and our, and our procedure rooms are connected to our lab. So the embryologists are there, right there, waiting for those tubes to be collected and they're taking them to the lab. They're putting them into a Petri dish and they're looking under a microscope and they're counting egg, egg, egg. So we in real time get feedback, which is really helpful. Like we want to hear those numbers being called out. We want there to be as close to a one-to-one ratio between follicle and egg. Sometimes you don't get that though. And it's very common to have empty follicles. And I usually tell patients that our hope is to get 80 to 90% of the eggs that we counted during your simulation, but it's common to have a few empty ones. So again, single entry point into the right ovary, single entry point to the left ovary. At the end of the procedure, we put a speculum in and we just make sure there isn't any bleeding. Um, Sometimes there's like a little trickle. We put some pressure on it for 30 seconds. That's it. It's very, very rare to have excessive bleeding during this procedure. And it's very, very safe. During the procedure, you're totally, um, you know, you're under anesthesia. You're very comfortable. Um, You shouldn't experience any discomfort. And different clinics will use different types of anesthesia. So if you have any questions or concerns about it, you should talk to, you know, your clinic about it. But the goal is safety and comfort and making this a, you know, easy procedure for everyone. Yeah. And then by the end of your procedure, which on average takes about 10 to 15 minutes, you have an egg count. So it's quick, right? You have, <laughs> it's a quick procedure. Um, there's a lot of time that you need to come in, get an IV placed, get IV fluids flowing, recovery, maybe another half an hour to make sure that, you know, your vital signs look good and that you're rec- you don't have too much pain after the retrieval. But the actual procedure from start to finish is 10 minutes and, um, and you have an egg count before you go home. Later in the day, if you're freezing your eggs, the lab will actually go through a process called egg stripping. Stripping basically means you take the support cells off of the egg. You create like a naked egg, basically, so that you can look into it and and characterize its maturity. So if you guys are interested, there's three types of grading for an egg. And... These are really important to know because you want most of your eggs to be the most mature. That is also referred to as M2, stands for metaphase two from cell biology. You remember different cell stages. It's just, it's it's on hold in that particular phase of the cell cycle. So 
M2 is where you want most of your eggs to be. Then there's M1, those kind of started the process but didn't complete it. Those have a much, much, much lower chance of fertilizing, but you know, some labs can mature those in vitro. And then there are the germinal vesicles or GV eggs. Those are probably no good. Some labs, most labs don't even freeze those. So at the end of the day, like after you, you've gone home, you had your egg count, you want to reach out to your clinic and find out what were, what were the grades of your eggs? How many were M2s? Because that's really what you care about. And um, so that takes a couple hours to do. And the lab will freeze the eggs at the end of the day, put those into a cryo tank, and then store them indefinitely until you're ready to come back to use them. Is there any way before you go into the procedure, like with the last the last round of labs that you do and the ultrasound, do you have an idea of what to expect when you go in? Or is it kind of like, we don't know how many eggs we're going to get at all? Uh, we definitely can predict because in most cases, you're going to get 80 to hopefully 100% of all the eggs. But typically, you know, like I mentioned, it, there may be a few empty follicles. So you, you'll go in and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tell the patients, I think it's helpful for them to know too what to expect. And if there is a discordance, which sometimes happens, maybe there's more empty follicles than what you expected. You know, I've had cases where all the follicles were empty and it turned out that that patient did not administer her trigger shot correctly. And you remember, like I explained before that, egg is stuck to the wall. So if it doesn't get released, you can't get that egg out. So unfortunately, that patient had to re-trigger with the proper technique and then do the egg retrieval two days later. But um, but yeah, I mean, in general, you should see numbers that are pretty consistent with what you've been seeing on ultrasound before. Some of the smaller follicles may not produce the egg, but you should, going into a procedure, know how many follicles are, quote, in range like in that 17 to 22 millimeter range, because those are the ones that you expect to have a mature egg. One final, you know, question just to kind of wrap this up, unless, unless Jack has anything else. Um, how does your body just kind of go back to normal after this? Like when can patients, you know, if they're not on birth control, restart their birth control? How, how likely are they to get pregnant if they aren't on birth control? Like how long should they abstain from sex or like continue to use barrier methods in the aftermath of um, an egg retrieval? So you will almost certainly get a period one to two weeks after your procedure is done. And definitely you want to abstain during that period of time. Um, once you get a period, you can restart your birth control method. And I recommend using a backup method for at least five to seven days, just as an extra form of protection. But most women go right back on their pill with no issues. Again, if you had another form of contraceptive, maybe you didn't even need to have it taken out at all. So it's very easy. I mean, you may need to come off for about four to six weeks. Um, but in general, it's a pretty short period of time that you are off your birth control method. Have you seen any patients get pregnant during the process? I have. <laughs> that's that's um, been our biggest like concern. <laughs> like how to not let that happen and get pregnant with like 10 tuplets or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a couple of times. Um, so th th it happened in cases where we 
had done a stimulation in the luteal phase of the cycle. So Mm. as I mentioned before, you know, you can stimulate any time of the cycle. There are always follicles there. And when you stimulate, you're just recruiting whatever eggs are there at that given time. So sometimes I like to stimulate in the luteal phase for a variety of different reasons. But that couple actually tried to conceive in that month. But we didn't know that she was pregnant until we were halfway through the stimulation. And we checked an HCG level and it was definitely a pregnancy. So we obviously stopped the medications and we monitored the pregnancy. So there's that type of pregnancy that can happen. I personally haven't seen a pregnancy from, you know, a a cycle in which eggs were retrieved. And then like if an egg was missed and ovulated, you know, then that woman subsequently, I I think that I personally haven't encountered, but, but I have seen patients get pregnant during the simulation. Fortunately, these medications are pretty safe. So there wasn't a big risk to the pregnancy, but certainly was pretty shocking to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I will say. Oh my gosh, this has been amazing. Dr. Shah, thank you so, so much for spending so much time with us today. I have so much information to digest. I'm like going to have to re-listen to this one a few times and like take notes. But I think this was so, so, so helpful to break down the science yes. and how everything relates to the body. Because Yeah, I think that even Danielle, like I said, Danielle and I are both nurses. I think our health literacy is pretty high. But when it comes to the specifics of reproductive endocrinology and all these medications, it's very confusing, even for for people that work in medicine. So we really appreciate you breaking it down for us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I hope um, all you and all the listeners learned something you didn't know before. We hope you loved this episode with Dr. Mira Shaw. If you don't know yet, this is part of our five, maybe six-part series that we're doing with Co-Fertility and Freeze by Co, sharing with you guys all of the things, all of our process, all of our emotions, all of the resources on our egg freezing journey. So if you love this and need more from Dr. Shaw, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Mira Shaw. That's M-E-E-R-A-S-H-A. H. Also, make sure you check out the show notes for all of the links to Cofertility, where you can take their quiz and see if you're eligible for free egg freezing. Also, cofertility.com slash freeze, where you can get all of the resources, all of the blog posts, everything else egg freezing, and be sure to follow them on Instagram and TikTok at freezebyco. This has been so fun doing these episodes, learning all this stuff, sharing our resources with you. So if there's someone in your life that is thinking about this too, or you've been talking about egg freezing with one of your friends, share the episode. Every like, share, follow of the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Audible, wherever you listen, really helps the pod and helps us to bring all these amazing resources to your ear holes. We love you guys so much, and we will catch you all next week with another awesome guest to continue this series on egg freezing. On that note, WOMED out. Ooh.